0: At least a portion of this passage is, I think, familiar to most of us, Uh, but here we find before us the great prophecy of Isaiah concerning the coming son of David, the one who would receive an everlasting kingdom, that very kingdom of which we are called to pray, uh, would hasten from grace to glory. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 7. And now, turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, as we continue uh, looking at the Lord's Prayer, uh, we'll give attention to the second petition this morning. But I would again like to reread the whole prayer that our Savior has called us to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Our Savior is saying this that we are to pray in like manner. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, uh, as we come before you in prayer, we recognize that we need um, to be taught how to pray. And so we pray that you would teach us, that in this second petition uh, you would so reshape and reorient our hearts and its desires to long after after the things that you have called us to long after. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think in the history of the human race there's been no shortage of earthly attempts uh, to bring heaven to earth. One only thinks of the French Revolution or the Taiping Rebellion or the countless communist failures of Eastern Europe or Asia. For those of you familiar with American history, it seems as though the 18th and 19th century are littered with example after example after example of multiple utopian communities attempting to establish uh, some type of heavenly perfection, some form of perfect society. In all of these cases, philosophies or gimmicks are given and offered as some silver bullet uh, catch-all to alleviate the world of all of its problems and create the perfect community. All we need to do is have better education. All we need to do is to uh, uh, rid the world of uh, economic classes or social distinctions or fill in the blank. What we find is that this is nothing new. It is not even a modern problem. According to the book of Daniel, the whole history of the human race is characterized by failed empire after failed empire, each successive empire attempting to establish a kingdom that would last forever. And yet with each successive regime, each one proves to be more beastly and more tyrannical than the last. I think it's easy even for us Christians to get swept up in the latest political and ideological fads. And yet, I think that the second petition here this morning in the Lord's Prayer is given to wean us off of such earthly-minded pursuits and behaviors. Here we find a very simple prayer. Your kingdom come. And yet in it we find a wealth of information that so directs us and shapes our hearts to long for a kingdom that no political leader on this earth can fill. Here we are given and promised a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And here this prayer trains us that we might know that heaven heaven comes to earth not through human achievement, but by divine gift. There's three things I'd like us to consider this morning as we consider a very simple prayer, your kingdom come. Three things. First, I would like us to consider the kingdom. Secondly, I'd love us to consider God's kingdom. And finally, I'd like us to consider the arrival of the kingdom. So first, we'll consider the kingdom, in other words, the nature of that kingdom. Secondly, we'll consider the fact that this is, in fact, God's kingdom and not ours. And finally, we will consider the, the arrival and the timing of this heavenly kingdom. I think in one sense we could say that the phrase, the kingdom of God, accurately summarizes the whole of biblical history and prophecy. We've already seen this a number of ways in Matthew's gospel, as we've now been in this book, uh, for about nine months here we find that the message of the kingdom summarized our Savior's preaching ministry. You remember that at the end of Matthew chapter 4, as he as the, uh, uh, the, the last son, I shouldn't say the last son, he as uh, the, the true son of Adam comes and defeats uh, the serpent in the wilderness. It is said that he begins to go from town to town proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Here, the uh, Sermon on the Mount is summarized as a kingdom message, that, uh, that heralding that the, the kingdom of God has arrived in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is important to know. This is important to recognize. Paul himself, writing to the Church of Rome, says that through Adam's rebellion, death had begun to reign over all the earth. And yet, from the very opening pages of Genesis, we are told that God comes to us in his grace to upend Satan's schemes, to put death to death once and for all, to shatter death's merciless grip, to defang death, to remove the sting from its tail. God promises to upend death's reign through the promise of a son the offspring of the woman. According to Genesis, God had promised to Eve, and then from Eve to Abraham, a royal heir who would subjugate his foes, one who would be granted an everlasting dominion, that very dominion that the first Adam had forfeited by his treachery. Here this promised son, the last Adam, would come through the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah and through the line of David. As the Bible tells us, not only would this royal heir subjugate the gates of his enemies, but by fiery trial he would be given an everlasting dominion, according to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, whereby his kingdom would shatter the beastly kingdoms of men and bring history to its ultimate consummation. Just as God had promised the first Adam to establish dominion over creation, so we find that through the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, that dominion, though once forfeited through the first Adam, is reclaimed and expanded and given to the last Adam as he ascends, as he rides upon the cloud to claim his everlasting inheritance The Son of Man, the Son of Adam, triumphs over the beastly empires of the age, and he receives the everlasting dominion as the Lord of heaven and of earth. And isn't it interesting that it is this title that Daniel uses, Son of Man, to speak of the work of this mysterious figure in his vision? that this title becomes Jesus' favorite self-designation in his own earthly ministry. Perhaps he's trying to tell us something, that he is the one of whom Daniel has spoken. He is the sum and substance of all biblical history and prophecy. And this, in fact, is one of the main features of Matthew's gospel. It begins with a royal lineage. It shows Jesus of Nazareth to be the son of Abraham and the son of David, and it ends with him declaring that all authority has been given to him, not just all authority on earth, but also all authority in heaven as well. Matthew ends with the Son of Man receiving his heavenly inheritance, and everything in between from Matthew 1.1 to Matthew 28.20 highlights the nature of this kingdom That our Savior receives. Be it by his miraculous deeds or by his parable teaching ministry, this gospel is given to teach us that Christ's kingdom is not like any other kingdom that has come before. I think this is important to recognize because it is perhaps one of the greatest misunderstandings that Jesus repeatedly has to confront in his own earthly ministry. Among his hearers, nearly all of his hearers, be it his fiercest opponents or even his greatest proponents. You think of Jesus as he stands before Pontius Pilate, as he stands trial condemned as a sinner, though he himself was sinless. And Pilate tells him of the authority that he holds and what is Jesus' response. Pilate, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I have the authority to summon legions of angels to come and deliver me from what's about to happen? And yet Jesus says he's not going to do it. Why? He says, because my kingdom is not of this world. This is not how my kingdom operates. Fast forward just a few weeks later. Forty weeks later. And a few days later, as Jesus is uh, standing on a mountain about to ascend to heaven, and he's speaking with his disciples. And his disciples turn to, to Christ, and they say, well, Lord, is now the time when you're finally going to restore the kingdom? You can read this in Acts chapter 1. Even Jesus' own followers, even at that point, still don't grasp the nature of Jesus' kingdom. It is not simply another political entity. It is not simply a a better earthly government. Here we have something that is as far different as is heaven is from earth. Even then, Jesus' own followers had misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. And what we find is when you survey church history, you find this is not a problem that plagues Jesus' own generation, but perhaps every generation thereafter. You read about the spread of Christianity in the Latin West or the Greek East, and you will find the same problem emerge over and over and over again, be it in Christendom or in Byzantium. The debate over the manner of Christ's reign and what this means for the church on earth. What is the relationship of the church to the state? Should the church run earthly governments? Should the church wield the power of the sword? should the church act like the best political entity on the face of the earth and so try to establish dominion for the sake of Christ as the representative of Christ on earth. And yet time and time again, we are continually drawn back to the teaching of Scripture that under the new covenant, the weapons of the church's warfare, as Paul writes, are not carnal. They are not of flesh and blood, rather the weapons that we possess are a spiritual arsenal, because the kingdom to which we have been ushered into is not a physical, national, earthly kingdom. In other words, when we speak of the kingdom... We need to recognize the means of its hastening will not come through political revolution. Political revolution will not usher in the kingdom of God, neither will cultural renewal pave the way for this heavenly empire. Here we find that the difference between God's rule and man's rule is the difference between heaven and earth itself. And we must neither confound nor conflate the two. And this is the perennial danger that the church repeatedly faces time and time again that we look at the political landscape and we go, well, the church can do it better. And so we try to operate according to the church's own, or to the state's own principles and powers. When Christ calls us to pray, your kingdom come, he is directing us to consider the nature of this kingdom that is coming, of this kingdom that has already arrived and begun through the person and work of Christ. This is why older theologians, in particular our Presbyterian forebears, spoke so ardently of the spirituality of the church. That is not to say that our religion is to be privatized, as if what we do in the midst of our community doesn't matter or shouldn't matter. That's not the point. But rather that this is a spiritual, capital S, kingdom. One that is wrought by the Spirit. One that only comes and is secured through the work of grace that comes through the proclamation of the Gospel. When we speak of the kingdom of God, we must not treat this kingdom as just another kingdom along the way. A kingdom that operates according to the same rules and principles of all the empires that have come and gone before. If I can be blunt, I think this is why I'm very nervous about this renewed language we find in our own Reformed circles about those defying tyrants in the name of Christ. I think it smacks of an earthly-mindedness that fails to grasp the nature of Christ's reign. Christ who reigns presently as king of his church. So when we speak of the kingdom, we must know what we were talking about. This is what the parables in Matthew's gospel are all about. And so I don't have the time to cover all of that today. But guess what? We have the next couple years to work through Matthew's gospel to take our time to recognize those things. That's why these parables are given to us. But for now, I think we could put it like this, that the kingdom of God is about the reign of grace, a grace that leads to glory. Our shorter catechism, question 26, puts it like this when it asks the question, how does Christ execute the office of king? As Christ, being a king, he has a kingdom, we are told what it is that he does. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and all of our enemies. What a wonderful truth to know that that interadvental period, that is to say the period between Christ's first coming and his return, is marked by this. The spread of the gospel and Christ subduing his enemies to himself in grace. And for all who are not subdued to him in grace will be subjugated to him in judgment on the last day. That is really the whole scope of human history. If we were to write a textbook of world history, we could summarize it in these few words. All of Christ's enemies being made his footstool. I think this leads us to our next point, that when we speak of the kingdom, we are speaking about God's kingdom, not my kingdom. Of course, it is true that when Christ has risen and ascended on high, he has made us partakers of an everlasting inheritance. The contrast I mean to bring here is that we should not confuse our own desires for God's desires. And God is not here to cater to our every whim. God has not come to cater to any whim, for that matter. And yet, how often do we treat prayer like that? Isn't that the great danger of the prosperity gospel movement? That God becomes the giant vending machine given to where All we have to do is slap Jesus' name on the end of the prayer, and we can have whatever our heart desires. That is not what this prayer teaches us to pray. This petition reorders our priorities as it reminds us to pray, not my kingdom come, but thy kingdom come. And one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs is a song called With God on Our Side. And he retells in Dylanesque fashion modern history from the perspective of those who use God as an excuse to advance, na- to advance national and political interests. And yet, he exposes, by the end of it, the the sheer folly of it, the the sheer uh, bravado that one would have to say, well, God is on on our sides in all things, therefore we can treat him like some sort of lucky rabbit's foot. Don't you remember the story in Joshua? Joshua, right before the Battle of Jericho, he stumbles in the darkness upon uh, the captain of the armies, and he says, who are you? He says, are you for us? Or are you for our, adversar- our adversaries? And what does the angel of the Lord say? None of the above. I'm for neither. I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. The Lord has not come to advance our own personal interests, our own national desires or purposes. We've flipped everything on its head. We've got it turned topsy-turvy if we think that is The case, God is no rabbit's foot to be put in our back pocket to advance our own private, political, or national desires. This is what this petition teaches us. We are called to pray that God's kingdom would come, not my kingdom. In other words, not my own personal desires or interests. God's priorities take first. Isn't it interesting that before we pray for our daily bread, before we pray for forgiveness, before we pray for uh, the, 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 the strength to endure temptation and the power and the, to be delivered from evil, the first things that we pray for focus on God's name, His kingdom, and His will. What we are being presented with is a prayer That is radically theocentric, that is given to upend all egocentric prayers that fester like weeds and grow in the human heart. God's priorities supersede my own personal desires. That's not to say that all of our other concerns are unimportant. We'll see it towards the end of this chapter. Jesus will say, seek first the kingdom of God. And all those other concerns that you have, they'll be added. Food, clothing, those things will come in time because you have a Father who cares for you. But your chief import, your chief priority is a concern and a prayer that the kingdom of God would come. God's kingdom, not my kingdom. But we can also put it like this, that this is God's kingdom, not a democracy. Winston Churchill famously once said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all other forms that have ever been tried. I think from an earthly vantage point, a republic might be the best earthly way that we have to keep human sin in check. So, Don't mishear me. I'm not knocking on a republic. It might be better than a monarchy. It's definitely better than communism. But even in its purest form, neither a democracy nor a republic can ever quell the sin that reigns in the human heart. God has given the civil authorities for our good to curb sin, to constrain sin, by the establishment of righteous laws. But these earthly political powers, not a single one of them can ever conquer sin. The best these earthly kingdoms can do on their best day is keep sin at bay. And so like every other human institution, democracy will prove itself wanting in this regard especially when the will of the people is hell-bent on committing sin. But the good news that we have here as citizens of heaven is that there is another kingdom that stands unshakable. A kingdom that is governed according to a law that will never change according to the whims of the mob. That there is no higher judicatory than the maker of heaven and earth. And he does not change his mind. He governs his kingdom according to the righteousness that he possesses, the righteousness that he alone is. And here we find a kingdom founded on that unalterable righteousness, and that is God's kingdom. Again, do not misunderstand me. I am a big fan of the United States of America. But at the end of the day... According to the Bible, according to the book of Daniel and Revelation, the United States of America, like every other human political institution, will crumble and will fall. And so we should not set our hopes on what America can do and provide for its citizens. Here in the second petition, we are trained to long for the consummation of world history. When that heavenly kingdom will arrive and subjugate all earthly empires. It leads us to our final point. I think this prayer raises a bunch of other questions, such as when will this kingdom arrive? If we're supposed to pray for its hastening and to pray for its arrival, does that mean that God is somehow not reigning now? Isn't it fascinating how such a simple prayer raises so many important questions? Are we saying that God is not actually sovereign over all things, but we're praying that one day He might actually become sovereign? That is not what Jesus is speaking of here. Jesus is not telling us that God has somehow uh, slipped on a banana peel, has broken His hip and can't get back on the throne. God is not like the prophets of Baal, of whom Elijah ridiculed, where he said, well, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe that's why he's not answering your prayer. No, the Psalms tell us over and over and over again that God is the king of all the earth, Psalm 47, not just some of the earth, not just most of the earth, but rather he reigns over all the earth, even now, over all the nations, God sits on his throne. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits as king over the flood. Yes, the Lord is king forever. Notice that God reigns always, not just some of the time, not just most of the time. Even in the midst of the flood, the Lord reigns supreme and sovereign over all things. Uh, One of my favorite Puritans uh, writing on this uses this illustration. He says, though the uh, the storms may cloud our sight of the sun, the sun still stands firm. The sun that stands behind the clouds will continue to stand even when the clouds dissipate. And so too, likewise, we see that God reigns over all things in His providence. So what is Jesus asking for here when He asks us to pray, Your kingdom come, if God already reigns providentially over all things? Again, this is why I said earlier that I think it's best to, to think of this as, uh, in, in terms of the kingdom of grace. The focus here, I think, is that when Jesus speaks of the kingdom, He is speaking not simply of God's providential rule, but he's speaking of God's redemptive rule, a God who comes to us in grace and leads us to glory. Hence the totality of Christ's own preaching ministry, Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, as he comes proclaiming, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's come. The kingdom has arrived because the king has come, and the king surely is being given a kingdom. As Paul writes to the church of Corinth, all the promises of God find their resounding yes and amen in the king of that kingdom, in whom all the Old Testament promises find their fulfillment. The kingdom has been inaugurated through the person and work of Christ, and through him who has come, he has come to bring salvation to the nations and to take his rightful place in the heavens. That's why the Gospels end and the book of Acts begins with Jesus' own ascent as he rides upon the cloud to receive his throne as he ascends not simply another earthly throne in the Middle East, but he receives the throne of heaven itself as he sits as Lord of the cosmos. And note that this arrival comes in this prayer as we pray for its hastening, that though this kingdom has been inaugurated through the person of, of, and work of Christ, it is brought to its consummate end on the day of His return. And so we pray that that kingdom that has begun to break into this earthly plane would continue to intrude until the day of its completion. And yet, something I'd like us to consider here that we take note of in this prayer, that the arrival of this kingdom comes without a single sword being drawn. This heavenly kingdom is found not through political revolt, but through faithful gospel proclamation that grace triumphs over sin and death through the Son of God. That the kingdom of grace has come and is seen in the church among the sphere of those who have been subdued by the word of grace. And that that kingdom continues to grow anywhere that the word is preached, anywhere that the sinful heart is washed and renewed and brought into fellowship with the living God. There God reigns in all of his redemptive glory. And here we find it, this sphere of God's reign is revealed gradually. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ presently reigns over all things even though we do not, do not yet see it. Even though it may not seem like it. Christ, upon His resurrection... From the dead has been granted this authority. And now, through the preaching of the gospel, it is not the force of arms that saves sinners, but it is through the preaching of Christ's infallible word. It is the declaration of amnesty Here, the church serves as an embassy and an outpost. Here, its ministers serve as ambassadors of an invading kingdom. And yet, if this is an invading kingdom that is far greater than this fleeting earthly kingdom, than any of these earthly kingdoms. Not even the kingdom of death can stand against the might and the advancement of the forces of heaven. Here, through the proclamation of the gospel, Christ delivers us from the kingdom of darkness, from the realm of death, and he translates us into a kingdom of grace. He keeps us, he protects us, He guides us, He guards us, He keeps us safe from all of Satan's foes that not even death can undo the work that has begun in the hearts of those who have been claimed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we pray that God's kingdom would come, we are praying that God would save sinners and that Christ will subdue Satan's dark domain It is good to pray that earthly kingdoms learn to uphold righteousness and do its job in curbing sin, but we must also pray that the heavenly kingdom would come and that Christ would not simply curb sin, but that he would conquer sin by the word of his grace. We should pray that this heavenly kingdom, though beset with many foes, though it comes in frailty and weakness, we pray that it would come and bring an end to sin, not only sin's power, but on the last day. That as Christ establishes or consummates, I should say, his kingdom on earth, he will, rid, he will rid this all of sin's presence. But you see here in this prayer that this kingdom is not advanced by our own initiative. This prayer reminds us that this is a prayer, not a pep talk. Jesus does not say here, nor does he say anywhere else to go and build the kingdom. The arrival, the growth, the consummation of the kingdom is not something that we do or accomplish. Not once in Scripture does Scripture speak of us as building the kingdom. Right? Wanting righteous governors and governments is a good thing. In fact, Paul tells us elsewhere that that is good to pray for those things. And as citizens of earth, we should seek to promote the common good, To love our neighbor and promote laws that protect the name and property and well-being of our neighbor, but we must not conflate that with the arrival of the kingdom. As citizens of heaven, our ultimate longing is not to see the right political party in power. Rather, our longing and desire is to see heaven come to earth. And that does not come by our own moral or cultural endeavors, that is not accomplished or ushered in through cultural renewal, by political lobbying, by conservationist policies, humanitarian aid, or even making good art, good as those things may be. They might be good things, but that is not how the kingdom comes. We might ask, well, then how does the kingdom come? Well, that's the very thing Jesus is teaching us today, isn't it? How does it come? It comes through prayer. As we are taught to pray, your kingdom come. We are taught here to pray that God would do it because it is not something that we can do. It is not something that we are able to do. If we fail to grasp this, we will end up no better than the countless regimes and the innumerable cults that have tried to bring heaven to earth by their own labors. The heavenly kingdom will not be ushered in by the next election cycle. And yet here, as the church assembles for the Lord's Day in worship, we are given a foretaste of that kingdom, aren't we? That's why our confession of faith says that the visible manifestation of God's kingdom on earth is found in the church. This is where the sphere of God's redemptive rule and reign is found. This is why corporate worship is so important. Because here we are reminded that we are just strangers and exiles seeking a better country, seeking a heavenly homeland. This is our way stop. This is our rest area along the way. This is our oasis in the desert. As we are a traveling band of pilgrims making our way to a kingdom that has an unshakable foundation. And yet as the gospel is preached, the Lord uses the preaching of the gospel to save sinners. And it is through that that the gospel, through the, that the kingdom continues to grow as it takes root in the heart of more and more people. You see, this prayer is to remind us that this world is not our home, that we are citizens of another kingdom. Therefore, we must live like it. And so order our lives to live in accordance with the hope of this prayer. Do you want to see God's redemptive reign continue to advance here in the valley? Here we find that heartfelt obedience is of greater lasting value than cultural relevance. Our Savior has already been given the nations as his inheritance. and The means by which he claims the souls of sinners is through the preaching of the word. And so we pray that the Lord's kingdom would come and that the Lord would bless his word that through the faithful preaching and an answer to prayer, and with the lives of those intent on living in ardent expectation of that kingdom, that the Lord would hear our, our prayers, and that he would grant them, and that his kingdom would be established on the day of our Savior's, Savior's great return. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that in these three small words, your kingdom come, Uh, that you would so reshape our hearts to think of your kingdom uh, as of taking great priority and that your kingdom would come and that our hearts would long for it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.